You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. My name is Curtis Arnold, and I serve as one of the elders here. Our reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, verses 5 through 38, located on page 590 of the Chairback Bibles in front of you. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijai, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. Both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have great joy, or you have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him. He said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, there will be silent. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at the delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them. Um, sorry, I lost the play. Um, and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, for, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, 
The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word, thankful for the truth that it brings, thankful that this time, in this season that you have broken into human history, made changes and brought us a Savior. Thank you for that, Father. And we pray now that Jeremy brings the word. You will tune our ears to hear and follow and believe what you want us to learn from, from your word, from the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Curtis. First Corinthians 1, verse 18, is just one of my favorite verses in the whole New Testament. Because in it, Paul sets up this contrast between how powerful the gospel is with how foolish the world thinks of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If you've only been to church like Mill Creek your whole life, you may not realize that within broader Christianity, there is quite a debate about how churches should do services and how Preachers like I, like, like myself, should preach in order to gather a crowd. And so there's books written and conferences and, and, and celebrities who would say, hey, elders of Mill Creek, Pastor Jeremy, man, we've got the program for you. We've got a great plan for, for how we can help blow up how many people come to your worship services. And as they give their ideas, very often there's quite a difference on what to do with the word of the cross. And what some would say is, the word of the cross, that's foolishness in today's day and age. Pastor Jeremy, wake up. It's, it's 2022. People don't want to hear about their sin and Christ's death on the cross and salvation for sinners. You need to do something a little more multimedia, a little something that's a little easier on the ears. And churches like us, elders like our team, some of you, as you someday grow up, move to different churches, will have to decide, in view of the way Paul calls us to preach, should we be preaching God's way or our way? Or we could say it like this, in view of God's promises, do you look at God's promises and say, no way? Or do you say, your way. Well, it's a question for us from 1 Corinthians 1.18, but it's also a question that we're going to see in our text today. As you just heard it read, there will be two main characters in our text, and both of them are going to be exposed to God's promises, and we're going to see a contrast of response. One character is going to say, no way, while the other one says, your way. And we'll finish today 
considering. Church, what do you say? Those are the three movements in the sermon. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open to Luke 1, verses 5 to 39? You can grab one in the little seat back, or you might want to turn uh, to ESV version, Luke 1, 5 to 39. I want to walk you through the text so that you can see it and wake up one day and decide. It's going to come up with a, a funny little sermon on responding to God's promises, but as is the way we do it here, we want to take what God has said, and make that the main point of this sermon. And that's where this text is going. If you're taking notes, you might write down our first big idea is this. No way. God is not going to fulfill his promises like that. There in verse 5, we're introduced to Zechariah. Luke wants his audience, that's Theophilus. We learned about him in chapter 1, verse 3 last week. Luke wants Theophilus to know Zechariah is a real guy, serving in a real temple, with the real job description of being a priest. And he's alive during the very real reign of King Herod. This is real history, and Zechariah is married to another gal who's also from this tribe of Levi. Her dad could have been a priest as well. Her name is Elizabeth. Now, they're really old. In verse 6, there is an incredible description about them. This is very rare in the Bible. Look how Luke describes them in verse 6. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes. You know, I look at something like that and I go, well, well they're not sinlessly perfect. Of course, they still needed Jesus' death for sins as well. But what our author wants us to understand is these two are prototypical Israelites. In case you didn't know, God really does want those who are his people to walk in obedience to his commandments. And these two then are great examples of walking and being committed to holiness. But that sets up the surprise, which is there in verse 7. They are actually God's people walking God's way, but they've got no kids. What in the world? Well, all of this may actually feel like textual flyover country, if you will. Some of you might be wondering, okay, pastor, I'm sure you have to talk about it because you're supposed to preach every verse, but what does this really matter? Here's what I found interesting. Already in just a handful of verses there have been at least a half a dozen Old Testament connections. And my betting money is you saw zero of them. Now, I'm not being mean. If the shoe fits where, and I'm confessing, frankly, I'm Old Testament illiterate too. And so if you're here and you would go, yeah, I'm a little bit Old Testament illiterate, well, join the club, but I'm telling you there were at least six connections to our Old Testament in just verses 5 to 7. I think many of us don't understand how significant this is because we're not as familiar with our Old Testament as we should be. I love the way Pastor Dave put it to me a couple weeks ago. He said, so many Jews, they never open the New Testament, so they have no idea who the Messiah is. But so many of us Christians, we don't open our Old Testament, so we don't understand what the New Testament is actually doing. What Luke is doing, let me show you, He's creating a parallel with an Old Testament character. And seeing as we just finished our walk through the book of Genesis, 
Can you think of a character in the book of Genesis who was old, who was married, who had no kid, and was trying to walk righteously before the Lord? Ah, well, now that you put it that way, Pastor, I am thinking it's probably Abraham and Sarah, and you would be right. What Luke is trying to do for Theophilus is go, I want you to have an idea in mind of how God has worked previously because I want to bring your attention to God working powerfully today. Luke wants readers to be mindful of the Old Testament. And he's going to do that throughout this book. So you need to be on the lookout. We actually have a little spot in your handout, I think, where you can jot down some places in the Old Testament or other scriptures where Luke is making connection to. But it's actually this sort of thing where we already had a half a dozen Old Testament connections that made me wish that somebody would invent an Old Testament Geiger counter. I don't know too much about Geiger counters. I was in elementary ed. But evidently, a Geiger counter is a tool that you use to detect radioactivity. Those of you who actually know what these things are probably find my explanation awful. You can correct me after service. But if you're deciding to go into an Iran missile silo and you want to know if you're going to be get radioactive poisoning, you take one of these things with you. And when uh, plutonium-357 shows up, it goes beep, 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 and tells you, warning, warning, you will die if you're not wearing a radioactive suit. So that's what a Geiger counter is. I'd like somebody to get one and rewire it to start beeping when Old Testament connections go off. Because then I could put it in my study and understand what is it I'm missing. Because if we had one of those Old Testament Geiger counters happening right now, it would be chirping right here at the beginning. Well, it's going to keep chirping. Move with me. Let's see where else it chirps. Verse 8, Zechariah, he wins the priest lottery, if you will. He's going to get to go into the temple and burn incense. Something I didn't know. The Old Testament teaches. Let me explain it to you there would be one priest who would get picked to walk in and light incense before the Lord. And if you ever had been picked previously, you would never be picked again. So this could happen one time. What is more, there were plenty of priests who never got picked. They served their entire career, but there were just too many priests and not enough opportunities to light incense. And so Zechariah... He's old. He's close to retirement. And he gets picked. It's his big day. I mean, this is his five minutes of fame. And Zechariah, he gets to walk into the temple. Verse 10, loads of people are praying outside. Verse 11, look who he sees in the temple. An angel of the Lord. Now, in case you didn't know, when you burn incense before the Lord, turns out you usually didn't get to have a meet and greet with Gabriel. But here's Zechariah telling, hearing from Gabriel, don't be afraid. We've heard your prayers. You're going to be a daddy, Zechariah, and your son's name will be John. Now, again, many of us have probably grown up with this story and we think, what a nice birth announcement to an old guy who had hoped to have a baby. But if we had that Old Testament Geiger counter, it'd be beeping more frequently. Beep, beep, beep. For starters, it had been 400 years since God had spoken to his people. In fact, if we talk to Zechariah, 
before he goes into the temple. And we said, Zechariah, when is the last time we heard the word of the Lord? Zechariah would have told us the last time we heard from God was 400 years ago. And we have it recorded in the book of Malachi. And it would have been 400 years since God had said through the prophet Malachi, I am going to send a new Elijah. A new Elijah who will prepare the way for the Lord. And if we had said, Zechariah, are you ready for that promise to be fulfilled? Zechariah would say, you bet. You bet. I've been waiting my whole life. And my daddy, he waited his whole life. And my grandpa, generations have been waiting to hear a word from the Lord. And here's Zechariah in the temple for the first time in who knows how long hearing God's word. Wow. So you take all this Old Testament activity, which Zechariah would have known. All right, you and I may be Old Testament illiterate, not Zechariah. The cat knew the word, and he would have totally grasped that just like God had made a crazy promise to Abraham and Sarah, God was making a crazy promise to Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And that future promised Elijah he'd been waiting for and praying for. And that future Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, who he had been praying and waiting for, it was going to start happening. And you would think Zechariah, of all people, then would hear the word of the Lord and say, Amen. God's going to show up and blow up. But that's not Zechariah's response. In fact, Zechariah says in verse 18, eh, how shall I know this? Which may sound innocent enough to us, but Gabriel knows. Because look how Gabriel responds in verse 19. And the angel answered Zechariah 19, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you, sucker. No, sorry, the sucker, that's my... Uh, I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, Zechariah, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. God brought a word to his temple to his man, the faithful, blameless priest. God, looking at Zechariah, who of all people should have believed and been ready. And Zechariah functionally saying, no way. That's not how God fulfills his promises. And so he can't talk. How ironic. Here is God's man. Charged with teaching God's people, and he won't be able to say a word for nine months so that he might cook on whether or not he's going to believe God's promises. Verse 21, he leaves the temple. Crowd knows something. He tries to do some sign language. He didn't take any ASL classes, it looks like. He eventually ends up back home with Elizabeth, and guess what happens? She gets pregnant. Oh, and then she makes a quote. From the Old Testament, no surprise, bringing us to the end of this first section, showing us that for Zechariah, God wasn't going to fulfill his Old Testament promises the way Gabriel proclaimed. 
And that's what's going on in the first section. Luke wants us to see it. As far as Zechariah, God's man in God's temple, God's priest, he folds his arms and says, no way. That's not how God's going to fulfill his promises. We would have guessed Zechariah of all people would nothing is impossible with God. But as it turns out, it's an unexpected character who actually believes God's promises. Move with me to the second section of our text where we find this second character saying, your way. God, fulfill your promises however you want. 26 to 35, Elizabeth has now been pregnant for six months when the angel Gabriel makes a second visit. He goes to a culturally unimportant female in a culturally unimportant town. Mary is engaged to a man of the house of David, which again has that Old Testament Geiger counter starting to sing, chirpity chirp chirp. The gal is a virgin, by the way. More Old Testament connections. And then as Gabriel makes this second birth announcement, we find it thick with allusions. The book of Judges, the book of Daniel, the book of Isaiah. Gabriel picking up on Old Testament promises saying, Mary, get this. You are going to give birth to the Son of God. The child will be called Jesus. More Old Testament beeping. But then in verse 32 and 33, this is where our Geiger counter goes bananas. And it would be at this place where dads might have to say, hey kids, go get me a few more double A's. Because this thing is going to run out of batteries as much as it's singing when the angel quotes from 2 Samuel 7 in his promise in our text, verses 32 and 33. As one commentary put it, these announcement in verse 32 and 33 that Mary's son will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end one commentator wrote all of these verses are undoubtedly taken from 2 Samuel 7 8 to 16 Now, just in case you forgot to brush up on 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 to 16 over breakfast, that's one of the most important passages that you should know is all about the Davidic covenant. Now, you could say Davidic covenant later to somebody if you want to sound really smart. I'm less concerned that you sound smart, more concerned that you understand 2 Samuel 7 is one of the most important scriptures in all the Old Testament. Now, if you didn't realize that, Write that down. I didn't know it for a long time, and I've been a pastor for too long. 2 Samuel 7, if we were going to have a debate, what is the GOAT Old Testament chapter? What is the greatest of all time chapters in the Old Testament? We may not get it today, but Luke would have known, Theophilus would have known, Mary would have known, a lot of the characters, even Zechariah and Elizabeth would have known. Man, 2 Samuel 7 is powerful because that is the chapter in which David learns he is going to have one of his offspring reigning on an eternal throne. This is the kind of hope that those Israelites had after not hearing from God for 400 years. When is Messiah going to come and establish his eternal throne? And Mary, 
little Mary, probably a teenager, has Gabriel showing up in front of her saying, you are going to be the mom of this eternal king. A powerful fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. In fact, let me just read a couple verses from 2 Samuel 7 so you can appreciate how sweet this is. When your days are fulfilled, talking to King David, God's talking to him, and you lie down with your fathers, King David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. 16. And your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Having just heard 2 Samuel 7, can you appreciate why the Geiger counter is going bananas as Gabriel shows up, talks to Mary? I mean, this promise is unbelievable. It's unprecedented. I love the way R.C. Sproul puts it when he wrote, Jesus would be the greatest ruler Israel or the world has ever known. Verse 34, Mary's response, which astute readers will note, seems similar to Zechariah, says, how shall I know this, Gabriel? And we might wonder, uh-oh, is Mary not going to be able to talk either by asking a question? But Mary's question isn't one of disbelief. Mary's response in verse 38 is different than Zechariah. Mary's heart is your way. Look at the text. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Don't miss in that incredible response. Gabriel offers proof. Evidence that Mary can believe this promise. Turns out Elizabeth is a relative of Mary. Mary would have known Elizabeth. And he says, hey, your old aunt or whatever, she's pregnant. Proving verse 37. Nothing is impossible with God. Here then is the point to this second section. When push came to shove for Mary... Her response was completely opposite of Zechariah. In her view, God was going to fulfill his Old Testament promises however he wanted to. And while she might have wondered, hey Gabriel, how does like a virgin teenager get pregnant with the Son of God? After hearing Gabriel's announcement, she believed the message of the Lord. Surely nothing is impossible with God. Here then, a young, cultural, know-nothing female in the middle of a know-nothing country of Israel, in a know-nothing town, hearing the word of the Lord, and instead of responding, no way, she responds, your way. God, fulfill your promises however you want. 
Well, now we've walked through our text, and we've seen how these two passages are parallel, right? Each starts with an angel. Each has a birth announcement. The main characters ask a question, and then there's a promise. Having then walked through these sections, let's move to the application part of the sermon. We saw no way and your way. The question for you is what will you say? If you're taking notes, you might write down this first question for application. What will you say? Friend, will you believe that God fulfills his promises however he wants? Will you believe God fulfills his promises however he wants? This question, which we get from the primary point of our passage, puts us in the hot seat. Puts us in a position like Zechariah and Mary consider. Do we believe that nothing is impossible with God? Are we ready to believe that God can fulfill his promises however he likes? Regardless of how ridiculous or bizarre God's methods may be, are we ready to grant, like the foolishness of preaching the word of the cross, God, fulfill your promises however you want to fulfill them? Or do we have an attitude that's more like Zechariah? No way. No way. I'm reminded of the ways that my brothers and I used to talk to each other when we were growing up. I've heard siblings talk like this to one another when they have to do a chore. I don't know if your kids are like this. I was. Like, if you have a couple kids and you say, hey, go load the dishwasher, one of them starts loading the dishwasher, and inevitably the other one looks and says, that's not how you do it. I'm going to tell mom you're doing it the wrong way. Mom, you're doing it the wrong way. I think that's kind of the attitude that Zechariah demonstrates in our text. Gabriel, it's not how you do it. That's not how God's going to keep his promises. And Luke wants us right here, at the very beginning of this book, to do business with this important question. Is God going to fulfill his promises in ways that we can get our mind around? Or is God going to fulfill his promises however he wants? Even when it flies in the face of what we think, nothing is impossible for God. And that's the sermon in a sentence. Nothing is impossible for God. But let me try to make this point a little more practical. Let me ask you this. Do you believe God is working powerfully and intentionally, in our world, just like he was working in Zechariah's world and in Mary's world. Maybe you go, man, look around, Pastor. I mean, look what our world is coming to. Are you, are you kidding me? Look how bad things are. Have you read the news? How can God actually be taking all of the circumstances that create so much fear and anxiety... Can God really use these things for his purposes? Well, what do you say? Is anything impossible for God? 
Or think about it like this. Some of you have prayed some prayers that seem to have gone unanswered. Maybe you and your spouse prayed them, not so different than Zechariah and Elizabeth. You prayed and you prayed and you meant them. And it seemed like God was silent on those things. Do you believe God can answer some old prayer of yours still today? That gives me goosebumps. Can God answer prayers that seem biologically impossible? A pastor I talked to, a Harvard graduate doctor, and he told me that upon the scientific data, it was possible to have Zechariah and Elizabeth have a baby, and therefore I can't have my prayers answered either. Baloney! Nothing is impossible with God. In God's timetable, He is never late. He'll fulfill His promises however He wants. Dear friends, I promise you, God was not up in heaven talking to Gabriel saying, Gabriel, I'm about to send you to Zechariah, and I really want to make sure that we deliver this promise in a way that he can sign off on. So I'm going to change some of the ways I'm going to do it so it's more palatable to Zechariah because he doesn't like it when I do crazy stuff. He wants me to be in the box a little more. i got to be in Zechariah's guardrails. That is not how God did it. He did not need Zechariah to sign off on his agenda, and I trust God does not need you or I to sign off on his agenda either. God's going to keep his promises, thank you very much, however he wants to keep his promises. But what do you say? No way or your way? Question two for application. Will you realize that God picks the overlooked? Will you realize God picks the overlooked? In our text... Do you notice who Luke highlights with so much honor? It's Elizabeth, an old woman who was barren, and it's Mary, a female who culturally was unimportant. Those are the two characters in our text who look really good. Just imagine how powerful this message would have been just a hundred years ago in our country. I understand women got the rights of in this country in 1918. Can you imagine in 1922 a preacher standing up and saying, look how wonderful Luke paints Elizabeth and Mary. They are overlooked culturally, but they are somebodies in God's economy. That would have been quite the message in the United States of America in 1922. Imagine what it would have been about 2,000 years ago to a Gentile named Theophilus in a culture where women were seen as little more than property. But here's what Luke's showing us. In God's economy, he picks the overlooked. Even Theophilus, the person to whom this book is written, he's a Gentile nobody. He's not one of God's chosen people. But he has the honor of having a whole book written to him. In fact, two books. Luke and Acts both go to Theophilus. Or think about old Zechariah. You might pick a young, spry priest, but not an old one without a kid. God often picks those who are overlooked to be part of his plan. And for none of us here, 
None of us believe, right, that we're here because we're so awesome. Yeah, God picked me because I'm so incredible. I'm basically the Patrick Mahomes of Christians, so it's no surprise I'm here in the church. I mean, if that's your attitude, look at 1 Corinthians 1 again, verse 26. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. A warning to any of you in here who are wise and strong or of noble birth and worldly standards, those aren't the sort of people God picks. What do you say, though? Do you believe he picks the overlooked? No way? Or your way? Question three, for application, will you be ready for whatever God's promises bring. Church, will you be ready for whatever God's promises bring? In our text, Zechariah and Elizabeth, as well as Mary, are about to get their lives flipped upside down. For Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're going to have a newborn. For anybody who ha who's had kids kind of makes you giggle. <laughs> I was in my late 20s when my wife and I had our first babies, waking up at all ungodly hours. <laughs> I was in my late 30s when our youngest son was born, and those middle-of-the-night diaper changes 10 years later had me thinking way more frequently, I am too old for this. At the risk of being Captain Obvious, the promises of God to Zechariah and Elizabeth are going to rock their world. Can you imagine 80, maybe 100 if they're the same age as Abraham and Sarah? Honey, it's your turn to get John the Baptist. <laughs> and he's got the Holy Spirit inside of him, so you better get up like you said you would. They had a lot to be prepared for. God's promises were going to cost them something. Or how about Mary? An unwed teenager in a culture where to walk around pregnant was to bring as much shame and condemnation upon you as you might imagine. The incredible promise as noble a woman is there will be, it seems like, she got to carry the Messiah. And yet, this great honor and privilege would come with an incredible cultural cost. Who knows how many people critically judged her when they didn't even know the story. We actually know later on in Jesus' life, this reputation of coming from a pregnant, unwed mother still went with him. Some still gossiping about him. And while I don't think Mary probably walked down the center aisle of a church to get married, I heard it suggested that if she did get married like that, eight months pregnant, 
walking down the middle of a church. That probably wasn't the way she imagined getting married when she was a kid. And that she, there she was, taking all the consequences that God's promises bring. For us, church, what sort of changes might God's promises bring to our lives today? And whatever it costs, how will you respond? Perhaps God wants to do something impossible in your life. But if it follows like the characters in our text, it may come with a high price. Are you ready for that? What will you say? No way? Or your way? Final question. Our gospel connection. Church, will you have confidence Jesus really is the reigning king? Will you have confidence Jesus really is the reigning king? See, the whole point of Luke's book is to show his reader God is fulfilling his Old Testament promises. And here at the beginning of this book, as the Old Testament Geiger counter has already alerted us, Jesus' birth and the announcement is already fulfilling so many promises. You can grab a little Luke scripture journal and you can read the next chapter or two before next week's and, and you'll find everything promised in Luke 1 is going to come true. God is keeping his promises. And if all of those promises are coming true, you can trust the promise that Jesus is going to reign on David's throne forever. That one's coming true. Here's the confidence that this scripture should bolster in us today. There is coming a day, Philippians 2.10, when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That promise has been made and God is going to keep that promise. Amen. Check out this one if that doesn't do it for you. Revelation 5.13. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. Hard stop in the sea? Yeah, somehow the lobsters and the whales and the dog and the orc narwhals are going to be going or, or, or to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. It's going to happen. Y'all going to be there. We're going to get to see the eternal king reigning. Oh, church, the reason we can have confidence that Jesus really will fulfill that Davidic covenant is because all these other promises that we've seen come true. Promise after promise after promise has come true in merely the text we're looking at today. If you keep reading the book of Luke and continue using an Old Testament Geiger counter, you're going to find yourself going, good grief, there's all sorts of fulfillment happening in this book. That's exactly what Luke wants for us to get, that it would give us certainty, steal in our spine. 
we believe someday he's going to reign because on this day we see all that he's already accomplished. Will you have confidence that Jesus really is the long-awaited king? What do you say? No way or your way? A final word for any of you here who aren't Christian. We're so glad you've been with us. Maybe you're just here checking out Christianity, checking out the church. Maybe you're coming with somebody you love, but you're not sure that you actually buy this yet. Perhaps you walked in, not so different than Zechariah, and you've thought, no way. My prayer has been that God may use the foolishness of what we preach to draw you to himself. Dear friend, salvation is available to you today. I'm hoping you turn from no way to your way. God, you do whatever you want in my life. It doesn't matter who you are, and it doesn't matter how bad you've blown it. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter where you've been or where you've come from, friend. Nothing is impossible with God. He can save you right now, and he would do it. And if you would believe in him, repent of your sins, trust in Christ, that day, when every knee is going to bow anyway, you would be waiting with anticipation. And what is more, if you believe today, you could go live in glory for eternity with Christ under his perfect and righteous reign. If you're here and you don't know him, repent today. Nothing is impossible with God. Will you pray with me? Now, Spirit, I pray you would do what only you can do. Would you save those who don't know you? For those who do, give joy. We love you. Glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.